lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. And greetings. Welcome to a special edition of the Steve Dace Show here on Blaze TV radio and podcast. My name is Steve Dace. Totters and Aaron McIntyre. How the hell are you guys? How's it going? Doing all right. Excellent. You guys ready to do this? Absolutely. 888-933-93 is the number. That's 888-933-93. Steve at stevedace.com. That's how you, yes, you, can email the program. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show over on Parlor at Steve Dace. Check us out on our new YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Steve Dace. And then finally, if you are a podcast listener to the show, if you wouldn't mind leaving us a five-star review to the program, we would greatly appreciate it. Only if you like us, though. Now, if you don't like us, don't lie. But you may be like, Steve, I kind of only dig this show a little bit. Totally exaggerate that. All right? And leave us a five-star review. We would never ask you to lie. We would certainly ask you to embellish, however. All right? Leave us a five-star review wherever you podcast from. Smash that subscribe button for us. We would greatly appreciate that. Now, why did I say this was a very special edition of the program? Because it is. It is a singular topic that we will address here today on the show. It is one I have promised or threatened, as the case may be, uh, to, to address. Boy, how many times over the years have I said, guys? And that's not counting before I said this before you guys started working here. But just since you guys started working here about five years ago, how many times have I said, we got to do a show on this, right? You guys have heard me say this countless times. Today is the day we are finally going to do so. Today we give you the list of the top 10 books every American should be required to read before ever getting a voter registration card. That is the topic we will be addressing today. Now, how did we come up with these 10 books? They're not all mine. I could have come up with 10, but then that would have been more work for me. Nobody wants that. So instead, what I did is I cleverly disguised my passing of the book, maybe not so cleverly now that I think about it, by suggesting, hey, guys, you guys should have some of your own offerings in here as well. All right. So four are from me, three are from Todd, and three are from Aaron. And we're going to go for the next couple of hours on the program, round robin through these 10 books and why we have suggested them. Now, Aaron, you put them in order. Yep. Did you put them in any order for a reason? Not necessarily, no. No. But I think it works. Once I got it done, I'm like, well, it, it works. We're starting with a bang and ending with a bang. I, 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 I agree. Now, let's get this out of the way right now, okay? The Bible is not on our list. First of all, it is 66 books, not one, okay? But it's not on our list because that is like a given, right? One of the first acts of the Continental Congress, one of the first official acts of a governing body in American history was the issuing of Bibles, the Geneva Bible. They said it throughout the 13 colonies. It's, we have our, um, although I'm beginning to wonder why, we have all of our, or most of our elected officials swear their oath of office with their hands on a what? On a Bible, okay? This should be an automatic. At least on this show, for you and our audience, don't you think, 
on the, if, if, if it's not an automatic that, that you should know your Bible, then we, we suck at this job since that's like the main linchpin of our program is to try to make a biblical worldview mainstream again, right? Plus, even if we put it on this list, what would we talk about that we haven't, like, let, let's introduce you to this thing called the Bible. We've been there so many times. Correct. Redundant. Correct. Now, maybe one of these days, what we should do is a singular show on David Barton's Founder's Bible, because there's a lot of fascinating articles within that uh, book about how the founding fathers tied or tethered uh, a biblical worldview to what they were trying to establish here in the 13 colonies. That may be a show that we'll do on a future day. doing that today with one of my picks. Well, and maybe one of my picks kind of does that as well. In fact, let's get to it because that's the very first pick that we're going to begin with. And it, and it seems like a good one to make number one, because we have devoted an entire year of content to this, sh- to this book on this show twice now. We did it once when I was just a local program. You guys were just listeners back then on WHO in Des Moines, Iowa. And then we walked our audience through this book again in 2017, coming out of the 2016 election, the whole big debate. The, the theme coming in our, in our, for our show that year was, what is conservatism? Conservatism, what is it, right? We had this whole argument in the 2016 primary uh, and then well into the 2016 election about what what conservatism really means. And and this book, I think, is an excellent framework to begin that conversation. It's The 5,000-Year Leap by Dr. Cleon Skousen from Brigham Young University. He wrote this back in 1981, but but it's it's timeless. This book is absolutely timeless. And, and Cleon Skousen, by the way, brilliant. I uh, wrote another book that we could have put on this list, as a matter of fact, uh, The Naked Communist. Uh, is another book that could have made this list. But uh, he was a constitutional law professor at Brigham Young University. And what he wanted to write here with this book was sort of the, I guess we'll say, quintessential, ultimate handbook, the reader Reader's Digest version. I mean, it, it, it's this book is written for everybody. It's smart, but it's accessible, right? The, the point of this book was to hand over to a new generation that he was concerned heading into the 1980s was maybe not getting the same kind of education previous generations of Americans were receiving. And boy, howdy, guys. Looking at where we are today in the 21st century, we're like, man, that 1980s public education, Todd, was so right wing. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Right? But when Skousen wrote this book, he was like, "We've, we've got to really stop this generational apocalypse that's occurring that may be on the horizon here. Okay. So what does he mean by the 5,000 year leap? Let's, let's start there. A miracle that changed the world. He makes a case here. Skousen does that. The constitution is a divinely inspired document. Now, let me clarify for you how he defines divinely inspired. He does not mean this in the direct biblical sense that God spoke directly to prophets, directly through apostles, directly through Christ, directly to Moses, and directly inspired the scriptures. That's not what he means by that. He means it's a divinely inspired document because it was an attempt in a civic sense to take those divine principles, those divine revelations, 
if, if I could sum up Skousen's view of Americanism's foundation, it's from the Gospel of John, where John says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That is Skousen's view of how, how Americana, Americanism, the Constitution, is a divinely inspired document because it was an attempt by imperfect vessels, human beings, known as your founding fathers, and some were great men, some were uh, accomplished men who were problematic, some were highly moral men, some were not. In other words, they were, they kind of sound like men. They sound like men in a lot of eras and a lot of generations. But they made an appeal to history. But they made an appeal to history directly through what the word they often used was providence. They say in the Declaration of Independence, upon a reliance of divine providence. Providence was the term de jour in their day for the direct hand of God at work in human history. And so what they attempted to do was to look down through history and see what has God revealed to man? You know, when Micah says, this is the, he has shown you, oh man, what is your duty? What is your calling? All right. What, it, what, it, what is it? What does it look like in a civic sense? How do we lay this out? How do we create an experiment in freedom? that will be successful when throughout human history, whenever this has been tried, it has failed. And what they attempted to do was fuse that divine revelation as best as they could, as imperfectly as they could, into a civic document that the people would abide by. And then ultimately it would be up to the people to abide by it, which is why John Adams, John Adams said, this is a constitution written only for a moral and religious people. This is why Benjamin Franklin said, a republic, if you can keep it. That there was no government scheme that could create a perfect, oper- a perfect outcome. And that tyranny in human history occurs whenever government tries. So what they tried to give us was the perfect opportunity to sustain this legacy. But they had to establish it on a firm foundation, and that firm foundation was divine providence. And over the course of this book, Skousen lays out in each chapter what each of these singular principles were, where they came from, both in biblical revelation or in what we used to call in old, in old, in, in back in the day, um, common grace or natural law how this was revealed through men like a John Locke or a William Blackstone in different periods of history. And he tried to fuse this into one singular American worldview. And it is a fantastic work. And it's a great choice to lead off the conversation. You guys have any comments before we move on to number two? Well, I, I came to understand who he was uh, by listening to your old uh, colleague, Jan Michelson. And he he was talking at WHO when you were yeah. at WHO mm-hmm. and uh, Skousen. There's kind of a it, it's basically a textbook. It, it, I think it's called America uh, that he was talking about. It's an expanded version of everything that is talked about uh, here. I mean, it's even got that hard cover. It looks exactly like a textbook. And my wife got it me as a surprise for a birthday. I mean, it's just it's absolutely essential reading how comprehensive he is this is this is mere christianity like 101 kind of stuff you to be uh, an an american citizen who can effectively negotiate your duties i i, I cannot think of a better person to start with than uh Skousen. aaron 
Yeah, and this is we we kind of talk about the um, the divinely inspired nature of of our nation's uh, founding, kind of tongue in cheek, but it, it really is. It really does come back to uh, come come back to this thought that. You know, it's it's not that the founders and the founding documents thought that we were the exception to the rule. It's that they understood that we weren't. And that's the basis on which, despite all of our flaws and all the flaws that we've had, the big ones, the the, the foibles that our country corporately has engaged in for uh, hundreds of years uh, and gotten over now, um, it still is the greatest, most exceptional country on the face of of the planet, the most exceptional people on the face of the planet. And it really, um, the book 5,000 Year Leap really takes you back to that and understanding why that is the case. It just didn't just happen in a vacuum. It, 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 it was this way for a reason. It's, it's still, again, the constitution, um, that it's still, uh, one of the uh, most amazing documents in recorded human history. It still is to this day. Number two on this list, Todd, is yours. This, uh, 2012, see, that's, I, I was trying to figure out in my head. I didn't think it was quite a decade ago, but this is the time when I had uh, several uh, small children to the, you know, diapers and all of that. And so when my evening came and my wife was still an editor at the uh, Des Moines Register, uh, I would uh, sit down and, you know, channel surf and uh, came across Jonathan Haidt talking about this book on C-SPAN and had to find out more about it. I've only read it the, the, the one time, and now after everything that's happened, I, I would love to go back and read it again. And Jonathan Haidt is still uh, active uh, on Twitter, so you can find him there. But he, he The name of the book is The Righteous Mind, by the way. The right, and and he diagnoses. I believe it was seven categories of values. Now, don't get the, the subtitle. Why good people? We can get into a theological debate. Nobody's good. That that that's not the point. Just like what ha it's basically what happens to your average person that they end up going one direction and uh, overly obsessing, perhaps, or just attending to one kind of value at the cost of many others. How do we order our? We talk about that all the time in terms of Christianity, Judeo Christianity. Uh, the Ten Commandments. There is an order. They make sense. Well, people sort through the categories that he determines are kind of what sum up how Americans think about values. But it's what's fascinating is why he decided to write this book. Because I was kind of skeptical. When is the jig going to be up? How am I going to be uh, sold a bill of goods at the end of the day? Because this is a, a man, he admits, I, can't, I come from the academic left. But here's what he did, and it's such a rare thing. And I tested this by giving it to a friend of mine who is a man of the left, and he said, yeah, it was remarkable how he did it. He, he went over to India with his family and spent some time there, and he, re, he loved being there. He loved the people. He loved the social dynamics, the order, everything. And he realized by any objective definition, these people are incredibly conservative, not hmm. in American political sense, but in terms of like family structure yeah. gender roles everything and he said he just it, it, it like a light bulb in his head well what does that say about me because i i go home and then i call conservative stuff you know backwards and antithetical even though i'm living out their values and, right and, now yeah and yeah. they but women are in america are working 
and doing jobs and going to school at a far higher clip in India. So what? So he he really did what very few people are capable of doing. He he broke down his entire worldview, and for everybody to see. And that's what made a huge impact on me. I, I, I'm pretty much I'm going to have to go back and read this a second time. But I, the three books I chose were ones that were just moments where you you got a taste of something that very few people have done or are capable of doing. I couldn't recommend this to you. And it, this listen, it, it 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 will test you if you are a conservative American Christian as well. It will make you set down the lies at least temporarily you told yourself about how you came to be who you are. It, this is simply a tour de force of just critical thinking, which is, I think you would like it. At, that is what I was going to ask you about, is the critical thinking aspect of this book. Because if there's one thing, well, let me start with this question. Is there any possibility we'd have, so this book was written in 2012. Correct. Okay. Is given what we've been through in the 2016 and 2020 election cycles, is there any possibility that book could be written by this kind of a figure right now? Well, he's still trying because he did a follow-up book called, I believe, The Closing of the American Mind. I know that book. Yeah. 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 Now, he co-wrote that, and I'm not sure who the other author is, but yep. he's been persistent in trying to do this. So would it, um, would it be received in the same light? I think that's where part of your question is going. I think it's highly likely that it would not, and many people who probably gave it a gloss then probably would file it. I mean, it. it seems like a book that we should have had everybody read before we got to the moment in time we're in right now of course. to try to head it off at the pass. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yes. So it kind of feels like the die is now cast, and we're all in our silos now, and the Civil War is just waiting for the shot to be fired. And this seems like this is the story that, get, that we go to to help us to avoid this kind of you know, um, uh, win-lose uh, scenario that we're looking at right now as right. a culture, right? And the, the terms, we talk about the terms all the time, the values, equality, justice, you know, things like that. And again, what, why do some of those words end up co-opting our narratives to the point that others are unfairly subjugated, don't stand a chance, right. to the point then where you can't even see the human in the other. I mean, he was ahead of his time anticipating where we were going. I think what's fascinating about this is it's not a new thing in human nature for people to believe high-minded values and then to struggle to live them out in their own life. Is that new? No, no. No. I mean, I got enough red light. I got enough red and red light in my ledger. We all do, right? That's why we need a savior. Okay. I mean, I, I I struggle to live out the values that I mean, I I'm on the front lines bleeding for these values, and in this in this in this flesh compartment, I still struggle to want to live out the values that I'm I'm risking literally my career and relationships and riches in order to defend values that sometimes I don't even live by and don't want to because of the Roman seven war going on within my own body, Absolutely. right? That's the human condition, right? What I find fascinating, Aaron, and this goes to a conversation we had with the individual from the Marriage Project on this show in the past. Is it Bradley Whitford? Is that his yeah, name? Okay. Yeah. What I find fascinating, Aaron, it is, it, is not, it, is not an, it is not part of the human condition to then live by values you're trying to undermine and defeat. 
right? I Correct. mean, when Bradley pointed out that it was actually white, woke leftists that are the most likely to get and stay married the longest mm -hmm. while they are undermining it as an institution in the civic realm wherever they go. That's the that's the disconnect I don't understand is when has there ever been a moment in human history where so many people have have lived by values that they don't believe in. A lot of rich people got rich by making good investments, making good life choices. You know what I'm saying? Being responsible, and yet they donate to political candidates and causes that want to undermine a lot of those pillars at the exact same time. It is chaotic thinking, and this actually segues into my into my first nominee. I don't know if you want to go there. Go for but, it. You bet. But my first my first uh, book up here is the Screw Tape Letters. And why is this, why do I think this is required reading for anybody before they can vote? Well, at the very heart of the screw tape letters is that I really do believe that it is a polemic on human nature. It really is, albeit from the other side of the looking glass. And when I say it's a polemic on human nature, what do we always say is a window to somebody's a political soul, we say it's the abortion I issue. A window to somebody's worldview, though, what is that? Is human nature basically good? Mm -hmm. And this book, in a very creepy way, I, rem I still remember the first time I read this book being completely creeped out. I don't know if you guys had the same, the same type of reaction as well. But, but if there is good and evil... And there is a difference between so if there's humans are basically if you if you say that human nature is basically good if you say anything is good then there must be something that's evil so we've got that there is good and there is evil there's nothing there but if human nature is essentially bad how would the forces of evil then seek to capitalize upon that and that is what the screw tape letters very creepy as I said that is what they attempt to do. And what you're describing earlier, Steve, about the white woke liberals who live by the very values they are working to destroy, that is how chaotic you can become in your thinking, in your life, in your worldview, in the way that you go about your day-to-day -day living. That is how chaotic your thinking can be when you believe that human nature is essentially good. You can justify any number of things while not living those things yourself because, well, they're just doing their truth. This book, The mm. Screw Tape Letters, all the time, a very, very, uh, yeah, of course, it's C.S. Lewis. He's, he's one of the best authors, I believe, in, in the last uh, century, two centuries or so, um, very adeptly points out how, how evil, how the forces of evil would attempt, would attempt to capitalize on bad human nature uh, if it is indeed bad, if it is indeed wrong. And of course, by the end of the book, you realize that, yeah, most of the time, left to our own devices, it, we're, not, we're not so hot. We're not so high and mighty. So that's, that's why the screw tape letters is. Because I think if you're going to live in a society, I mean, of course, it, Adam said our constitution was only for moral and religious people. Well, then it seems pretty, pretty uh, important to me whether or not you know, we agree about uh, human nature, whether it's essentially good or whether it's essentially uh, bad or broken. And so that's why I think the screw tape letters is, is essential reading. Now, if, if I had done the entire 10 list myself, this book would have been on the list. Yeah. I want to read a portion from this book that the first time I read this put me on my heels, rocked my world in a way that I don't know any, on a, on a theological, spiritual level, any man-made work I've, that I've ever read has. 
I mean, this book, this, what I'm about to read to you, this portion, given what I do for a living, took my breath away. All right. I had not forgotten my promise to consider whether we should make the patient an extreme pa patriot or an extreme pacifist. All extremes, except extreme devotion to the enemy. Now, I mean, this is Uncle Screwtape talking, so the enemy is God, okay? Um, are to be encouraged, meaning anything that gives you extreme devotion, except extreme devotion to God, encouraged. Not always, of course, but at this period, some ages are lukewarm and complacent, and that it is our business to soothe them yet faster asleep. Other ages, of which the present is one, are unbalanced and prone to faction. And it is our business to inflame them, those factions, he's saying. If your patient can be induced to become a conscientious objector, he will automatically find himself one of a small, vocal, organized, unpopular society. And the effects of this on one so new to Christianity will almost certainly be good. But, but only almost certainty, or certainly. Has he had serious doubts about the lawfulness of serving in a just war? Before the present war began, is he a man of great physical courage, so great that he will have no half-conscious misgivings about the real motives of his pacifism? Can he, when nearest to honesty, no human is ever very near, feel fully convinced that he is actuated wholly by the desire to obey the enemy, again, God? Is he that sort of man? His pacifism will probably not do us much good, and the enemy will probably protect him from the usual consequences of belonging to a sect, meaning... Is he acting outside of himself to be a pacifist? Is he a man that is normally of great moral, physical courage? He is prone to act, but he views this particular conflict as so unjust that he is going to take a stand against it. That even if he's wrong, Screwtape says the, that God will protect such a man and, and incentivize him on his moral courage. That's what Screwtape is saying here, okay? Your best plan in that case would be to attempt a sudden, confused, emotional crisis from which he might emerge as an uneasy convert to patriotism. Such things can often be managed, but if he is the man I take him to be, try pacifism. Whichever he had, meaning if he's really a coward, that, that's really why he doesn't want to fight, then, go, then feed that, inflame that notion. Okay? Inflame that. All right? What he's saying is we don't encourage any critical thinking. We don't encourage any countercultural living because that, even if they're wrong on the issue, that aligns with living a godly countercultural life. And since God is more concerned with their motivations than your actual, the results of your choices, because if your motivation's right, that's an act of worship. He can fix that. But, if, but it, he'll make the choice work. That's what the enemy is saying. Have him focus on the choice, not the motivation. Focus on the choice itself, not the reason he's making it. Now, whichever he adopts, your main task will be the same. Let him begin by tre treating the patriotism or the, patri pat or the pacifism as a part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of a partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important. Then quietly and gradually nurse him onto the stage at which the religion becomes merely part of the cause. This is why I push back when people say, I can't believe you're a Christian, you wouldn't vote for blank. How many of you have never read this book's section right here? Don't ever do that. You know what makes you a Christian? Christ. Not your association to anything else or anybody else other than Christ. 
make the religion becomes merely part of the cause in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of a war effort or of pacifism. The attitude with which you want to guard against is that in which temporal affairs are treated primarily as material for obedience. Once you have made the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your man, and it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing. They don't care what stance you take as long as your stance is your religion. That's all they care. Now, this is idolatry. In other words, take your position, whether it be right or wrong, and turn it into an idol. Provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes... And crusades matter more to him than prayers and sacrament and charity. He is ours. And the more religious he is on those terms, the more securely ours. I could show you a cage full of such men down here. And every time I read that, it just happened to me again. I realized this was describing me. I had done this. In philosophy, we call this reductionism. I had taken the existential cosmic truth of Christianity and reduced it to a force for making my arguments for, on, on morality, politics, etc. when it's really so much more than that. And I think a lot of what we call a faith-based expression in the civic realm in America in our day and age is the same thing. It's a means to an end. It isn't the calling of sinners to repentance and restoration. It's God is on my side, as opposed to Abraham Lincoln warning us, we need to make sure we are on his. This is Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network. Back here on a special edition of the Steve Day Show. It is an episode over the years that I have promised slash threatened so many times to do. And we're finally going to buckle down and do it for you today. The top 10 books every American should read before acquiring a voter registration card. Now, to recap, we've given you our first three. The 5,000-Year Leap. That's My Call by Cleon Skousen. The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. That's Todd's call. And then we just discussed the all-time classic. I, I think it's one of the greatest theological books ever written. You know I think that because I based probably the greatest thing I'm ever going to write in my life is an homage to this book. That's The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And man, when, when we finished the book and the, or we finished my book, A Nefarious Plot, which I intended to take, um, I intended to take Lewis's point of the temptation of the individual and extrapolate it, prorate it to an entire culture. The first edition of the Screwtape Letters is the exact same amount of pages as a nefarious plot is. Was not my intention to do that, okay? But uh, I make no bones about the fact a nefarious plot is a total homage 
to the screw tape letters, which is, I think, one of the finest works I've ever read. Ever. Oh, I, I mean, the, the nefarious plot is the creep factor of screw tape letters. I mean, I, I was creep, creeped out. I'm not lying about that. The first time I read screw tape letters, it's the creep factor of that, plus, um, you know, a gut punch every page. So because it's also about the times in which you're living. Yep. <laughs> right? Yep. Okay, exactly. Um, and keep in mind, during World War II, Lewis was reading that book on BBC radio as for like entertainment. Imagine you're you're listening to the Luftwaffe, you know, bomb, uh, uh, you know, bombs uh, the uh, the Abbey again tonight, while you're hunkered down listening to Screw Tape, being read by C.S. Lewis on the BBC. That generation was just a lot tougher than we are. Let's just be mm -hmm. honest about that, okay? All right, let's get to number four on our list of the top ten books. This one is one of my selections. And I read this book right before I made the transition from sports talk radio to news talk radio full time. And it dramatically changed my tactics. That I needed to be more direct in confronting evil and calling it what it is. And that doing so would therefore be more, would require me to be more direct about what is good and where do we find it. It's written by David Capellian, I think, who is still, I think, the managing editor at WorldNet Daily. Uh, and it's called The Marketing of Evil. What this, this, is a, this book is a prophecy of the time in which we live right now. And let me give you an example that, of one of the things he talks about. When, he, when this book was written, I think a lot of people would have considered this thing kind of crazy, even on the right Kind of crazy, kooky, uh, conspiratorial, okay? Um, I mean, we were living in a day and age where marriage amendments were about were in the process of, of winning 33 consecutive elections across the country. And now I don't, I don't know how many states did we put a marriage amendment up. Even in the South, I don't know. I, I would presume like Mississippi it would win. I, are you sure it would win in Georgia? No. I'm not sure. Are you sure it would win in North Carolina where the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association is located? I'm, I'm not no. sure. I think it would win in South Carolina. I think it would win there. Are you sure it would win in Florida? I'm not so sure about that. I, I, I think it would probably win in Louisiana. I think it would still probably win there. But like, let's go to places where amendments also won. California, Colorado. Yeah. Washington State, we had a marriage amendment win there. I think they'd have any chance in those no. states. No way. Think the, how many of those states would it even get to 40%, do you think? Would it even get 40% of the vote in California? Uh, well, it's an open question, I think for it's sure. An, I think it's an open question, for sure. Agreed. So how did we get here? What Capellian lays out here, and it, and it also helped me to, to not just do a theoretical show, that if we were going to address these topics and we wanted to do anything about these issues— it had to be very practical. How do we do what we believe? What Capellian lays out in this book is how, is how the left did what it believes. And one of the things that you see deployed every single day in our media culture right now is what Capellian back in 2005 described as jamming. And what jamming is, is it's a leveraging of all of your friendly platforms into a singular message so that the impression is given that this is what the majority thinks about a topic. 
Now, now keep in mind, we hadn't invented Facebook yet. Mark Zuckerberg had not invented Facebook yet. We're still about four years away from anybody knowing what a Twitter is. There's no Instagram. We are in the, we're still, um, there's still, I mean, Wi-Fi is still considered a, uh, an, an innovation in a lot of places in the country in 2005. The idea that you're just on your phone wherever you want to go and getting instant data to connect and listen to things, not happening yet in 2005. And he doesn't envision yet a Facebook or a Twitter world that makes what he describes in his book much simpler to achieve. So he was talking about them using the corporate sector, pop culture, academia, and and even if you had control of all those institutions, and the left did in 2005, to mobilize them into a singular message it's like moving a aircraft carrier you can accomplish it but you're not going to be able to do it instantaneously because they're somewhat disconnected from each other we're, we're not fully immersed in the information age yet right today though we are contributing at msnbc i saw what this looked like in with with my own eyes and it was I was getting ready to do a panel on gun control. I think it was after, was it Sandy Hook? That was the, the maybe the most tragic one in, Can, in Connecticut, right? And when Obama was president, where right. the, the, the woman's son walked in and, and shot all those yes. little kids. Yeah. And I had done gun control panels on MSNBC before. Suddenly we were doing a gun safety panel. Where did that talking point come from? How were they able to mobilize it and galvanize it that quickly? In the, in the fall of 2019, or the summer of 2000, I'm sorry, in the summer of 2020, we saw athletes spontaneously mobilizing protests, right? How did those WNBA players just happen to have, as you pointed out at the time, Aaron, how did those WNBA players just happen to have those t-shirts ready to go at an instant to pull this all off and, and had all their messaging down, coordinated. They had ESPN and friendly outlets ready to run with it. How? How? This is the, this is the concept of jamming that Capellian talks about, that there is a clear and present attempt to create a narrative around a favored message. He goes beyond, there's a, there's a more elementary description of this concept called the Overton window. I think it's named after a professor, is it at Hillsdale? One of these schools who surmised, and his name was Overton, and he surmised that there was a limited window where elites, that elites would allow certain, um, certain strains of information and then opinions about that information to get through that, that window called the mainstream so that they could control the narrative. Capellian takes, it, that, takes that concept with jamming a step further. And that this is now done to create a desired outcome. Right? So it's not just we're controlling the information that you then get to debate. We want to control the actual debate itself. And if you watch what plays out, how those doctors in California were just back in May, 
or in May of uh, the the uh, the COVID uh, pandemic. Early on, everything they said turned out to be true later in the year, yeah. right? How they were just instantly banished, though, because they went against the desired narrative. They were gonna they were going to alter the outcome of what the elite what, what the elite sectors wanted to take place. Okay. Um, you saw that later in the year when another group of doctors held a press conference in Washington, D.C., some of them from very highly decorated med schools, but they were having one on hydroxychloroquine, how they were just instantly erased. And the only message that came out of that is one of them believed in demon sperm. Remember that? Yes. And so none of their other claims could be, could be tackled or debated. But all of these media platforms instantly had demon sperm ready to teed up and ready to go. This is what Capellian talks about in The Marketing of Evil. He lays out in 2005 everything, what you're seeing right now throughout corporate America and its adoption of left-wing messaging, for example. He lays all of this out in the book, gentlemen. I think it's remarkable, the overlapping themes of the second, third, and fourth book, and in, in mine, Jonathan Haidt, he's, he's not even a Christian th that I know. But there was recently a Babylon Bee that speaks to those overlapping themes, and it was devil something about devil whispering in man's ear to not believe in the devil or something <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah. And that's that's why I was blown away when I sc wrote Screw Teeth Letters. I think The Marketing of Evil is the only book I haven't uh, read on our, our, our list. But what it speaks to is Steve's regularly channeled his Rosa Parks, the need to say no. We put our lives on first world Christian cruise control so much, and it can't really be that bad. And here with the, the marketing of evil, the screw, uh, the screw tape letters, it's just reminding you, you, you that, oh, the devil has you right where he wants you if you're pulling that scam on yourself. And the marketing of evil is clearly telling you, and again, I haven't read it myself, that, you know, you the, they're coming for you. They're, you know, you, you, it's not a conspiracy. See, you're not a conspiracy theorist if they're really following you. Yes. It is happening whether you like it or not. That defines the truth. And we're, we're all people of my truth these days. It's utterly irrelevant. This is happening. And he puts the actual, you know, he, he takes you inside the factory, it would seem to me, is what you're telling us. Exactly who's doing it, how it's happening. Uh, and so you can't you, you can't lie to yourself anymore. And and therefore, you have to react accordingly with the weapons you bring to bear. And the other thing this book lays out, Aaron, quickly before we move on to Todd's next one. The other thing this book lays out is why this libertarian notion, I'd love it, by the way, if this was achievable. But this idea that we can create this moral neutrality and you live the morality you want, I'll live the morality we want. I don't make you, you know, I don't mm -hmm. put you in prison for it. You don't make me subsidize it on the other end. And we coexist. It's why that is not possible because this is being marketed not for accommodation, but for affirmation. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it's it just, and very briefly as well, this, this furthers the notion that it is absolutely a zero sum game when yes. it comes, when it comes to the battle, the worldview battles in our culture right now, there is no accommodating. There is no plural pluralism whatsoever. It's a zero sum game. It must be defeated. It must be vanquished. Whatever that is, that is you know, progressivism, evil, you know, what, what have you. It must be vanquished. There is no living in harmony with it. All right, our next book on the list, our fifth book, the final one we'll discuss in our first hour. Todd, this is On Two Wings by Michael Novak. This is another one of your suggestions. Yeah, Michael Novak, Catholic uh, thinker and writer. He died, what, two, three years ago? Does that sound about right? The, the, 
this is um, his attempt to do what I talked about. Uh, the, when we had several books on this list that would talk very specifically about the Bible. But he, he goes and does a, a deep dive, but a very readable dive. This, is, this book is of the same size as your first book, uh, Steve. The 5,000-year the five, leap. The 5,000-year leap. And talks about—it really disabuses people of, the, of kind of the deism argument. And, and while undeniably uh, Locke, Montesquieu— very much at the core of American thinking, uh, every bit as much on the other side is, is is faith. And he goes into the actual diaries, the writings of all the founding fathers, and it, it, and does it in a diagnostic level that I know Steve would appreciate, and and simply gives you the data, the amount of citations that the writers of the Constitution and the formers of the Declaration of Independence actually put in their own letters that they wrote home and to other people to convince them to do this, and more than the thinking of Locke and Montesquieu uh, and Blackstone and and those, were uh, were Scripture, and specifically uh, the Old Testament. Uh, it, it's simply because un- they're dealing with the civic realm, a- exactly, and, and trying to put a divine law into a common law practice. Also, and right. they knew full well at that time. You know, uh, the number of varieties of old, of New Testament thinking, it, we we know. I mean, it, it, they were they were all over the place uh, in 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 the New World, uh, but the Old Testament was very much terra firma it's a way they argued with each other it's it it was a rosetta stone for critical thinking it wasn't magical thinking it was critical thinking so again that's the second book i've uh offered you now it's about worldview analysis it's about really really putting aside emotion and dialing in on what works and why it's fascinating that a lot of people today would define themselves as pragmatic by the basis of doing what works, right? Right, yes. But but this is now the second book that you have put on the list, and they both have a similarity in that they're pointing out that the way a lot of people, that pragmatism doesn't mean to most people what they no. what, what they think it means or they are claiming within themselves it means. So in the, So the first time it was a lot of people are living out values in their personal lives that in the Righteous Mind book, a lot of lefties are living out values in their personal lives that they are, in, 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 mm-hmm. in the civic arena, trying to vanquish and yes. get rid of. In this book, it is ultimately that what works is getting on the right side of history. Yes. And of course, the right side of history is on the side of the of history's ultimate judge. Yes. And you listen, it, I, this applies to you too, Steve. I, I found these books important in my life, and I read On Two Wings earlier uh, than the, uh, the Righteous Mind. But you and I are emotional guys. We, we've also always had a strong sense of justice on some level, but we, we needed to learn how do we focus it? How do we harness it? How mm-hmm. do we make sure if we're going to fight, it's for the right side? Because, you know, my, 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 that's why my that, thinking that's was— That's why that section of the screw tape letters yes. knocked me on my feet yes, because of what you just exactly. said. Exactly. Yeah. So it, the commonality, and we didn't compare notes on what books we were going to share. We just gave the list. It, it, does it surprise any of us that the list is what it is right now and the themes overlap? I don't think so at all. So that is part one. We've gone through the first five books. Part two, the next five books coming your way in hour two of our special episode, the 10 books every American should read before acquiring a voter registration card. Coming your way next year on The Blaze.
You're listening to Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network. Steve Day Show. We are back with hour two of a special edition of the Steve Day Show here live and on demand on Blaze TV, radio, and podcast. I am Steve Dace, Aaron McIntyre, Todd Erzin. They're here with me as well, as are all of you at 888-900-3393. That's 888-900-3393. Steve at stevedace.com. That's how you can email the program, D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. At Steve Dace Show over on Parlor, at Steve Dace. Also, check out our YouTube page, youtube.com slash Steve Dace. We've got all kinds of freebies that you can sample there, free clips of the program, and then you can share those with others. You might be like, I, I really hate your show. Those views count. So, I mean, if you want to do hate shares and mock us and mimic us, we'll take all the views we can get. We monetize the hate views too. So keep all the views coming. We don't discriminate. And if you are, uh, a discriminating listener, a, a person of great and immense taste, then obviously you love this podcast that you listen to. We appreciate all of you that listen to the podcast as well. Keep giving us those five-star reviews. We have received those from literally thousands of you. We'd like to receive thousands more. They are, I'm, I'm assured anyway, helpful in growing the program. I don't know how they that algorithm works, but I am assured that it does. So please keep those likes and, uh, and, and five-star reviews coming. Keep smashing that subscribe button for us as well. We are doing a program that over the, over the years I have promised and threatened to do many times. Today's the day I am finally, and our crew here, we are finally delivering the top 10 books every American should read before acquiring a voter registration card. Let's recap what we've shown you in hour one. All right, my first selection, The 5,000-Year Leap by Cleon Skousen, Todd's first selection, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, Aaron's first selection, The Screwtape Letters by the one and only Clyde Staples-Lewis. My next selection was The Marketing of Evil by WorldNet Daily's David Capellian. Todd next went with On Two Wings by Dr. Michael Novak, who passed away a few years ago. And now we come to Aaron's second selection as we begin the second table, if you see what I did there, of our 10 books. Aaron, you have the floor. So my next selection is The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, written in 1937. And for any book, I would say, what, um, older than 20 years, 30, 40 years old, definitely for any book that was written before you were alive, practice some of the same exegesis that maybe you would when studying scripture as well. That's always, always helpful because authors don't exactly tell you the uh, their, their own backstories all the time in books. They don't uh, tell you what's going on in their culture at that time. And the cost of discipleship, of course, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer's, the German pastor's um, uh, kind of commentary on the Sermon on the Mount and, and the, um, the, the distinction between what he calls cheap grace and costly grace. And 
in in looking into Bonhoeffer's background, of course, you'll find, like I just said, he's from Germany. And this book was written on the backdrop of the Nazis' rise to power in Germany. And here's what Bonhoeffer says when it comes to cheap grace versus costly grace. He says, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. He says, costly grace is. Costly grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes as a word of forgiveness to the broken spirit and the contrite heart. It is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. It is grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, in any other time during history, if we didn't know the background of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if we didn't know what time this was written uh, during, this would be like a... If this was just preached in your church over a you know a seven or eight week period, a, a, a you know a, a series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, it would be like okay, cool, bro, that's that's really helpful, cheap. But when you when you realize that this was up against the backdrop of what was happening in Germany at that time, it hits you like a ton of bricks. What the hell was going? What the hell was going on? in the German church during that time. And of course, we've all heard that anecdote about, uh, about the, the church out in the countryside of, of Germany who heard the, the screams of the Jews across the, across the railroad tracks during their Sunday, their Sunday singing services, and they just decided to sing louder because it disturbed them so much. We've heard those, those anecdotes before. But the, um, but the juxtaposition here of cheap grace versus costly grace do we not see a lot of cheap grace in, in the church here in America? The funny thing is, though, is that the more you think about this versus the costly grace, and I'll talk more about that later because that's borne out in my next selection as well, but the juxtaposition of cheap grace versus costly grace. Guys, cheap grace eventually means no grace at all. We think when we talk about progressivism, we think about the spirit of the age we think about this, anything goes. You can do anything. You can believe anything you want whatsoever. But we live in an age of cancel culture now. Does that strike you as having a lot of grace? Eventually, cheap grace, the secularization of the church, which is one of the main topics of the cost of discipleship, eventually the more a Christian, the more the church becomes secularized, the less grace it has. Because the more you become secularized, the more pagan you actually become. Do pagans have much grace? No, that's no grace whatsoever. No grace whatsoever. And yet, in our own human nature, we swing between these chaotic pendulums of, well, um, you, you know, it, it's either costly grace or it's uh, extraordinarily cheap grace. Uh, no. Um, no grace, the opposite of no grace doesn't mean some grace or cheap grace whatsoever. It means it's actually very costly, but there is grace to be found. And when you talk and when you look at the 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 state of the church in Germany during that time and the state of the church now, the resemblances are uh very dire. And again, I don't want to revert to whatever that law is called. Godwin's law. Godwin's law. I don't I don't want to do that. But it was in a position to be co-opted by something. Exactly. And that's really what Bonhoeffer is confronting in this book. And it is um 
again, it hits you like a ton of bricks when you think about the backdrop for which this book was uh, upon which this book was written. And that's why it's on this list as well, because we we often think that, uh, well, you can have cheap, you can have, uh, you, you know, you can have your cake and eat it too, whatever, whatever that phrase is. No, grace does not, it, it, there is no in-between when it comes to grace. Grace is costly. Grace means taking up your cross and following Jesus. Um, but there's a lot more to be said, but that's, of course, this book up against the backdrop, as I said, it's, uh, that's why it's on my list. I've, I've always wondered, and maybe you know, but that the movie of, I don't know, 10 years ago now, Luther, mm-hmm. and remember, this is the Catholic talk in here, and I've mentioned this uh, on the show before, but what kind of student of Bonhoeffer, who are the writers of that script was, because uh, there's just a fantastic line that I've always remembered where uh, Luther is actually getting a haircut, if memory serves, from an older man who was his teacher and mentor. In the end, but the older guy is starting to hem and haw about what's going. And, and Luther, this just, is the guy that collect. This is the guy that sponsored him at, at Wittenberg. That's the relic collector, right? That, I don't. It's that been a keeps long him time, safe when the church tries to have him arrested. He holds him up in his home. Yes, yes. and it's somebody who used yep. to be, you know, a teacher, and somebody looked up to it. But Luther's just getting fed up. Uh, and I'm obviously not a champion of all things Luther, but this line is perfect, and it speaks to what Aaron's talking. About. He just grabs him by the wrist and he says, "Did you really think there would not be a cost? I mean, that's." We must wake up in the morning and go to bed every night asking ourselves as Christians, have we been honest with ourselves about that? Among other things, it it does not mean always, you know, hair shirts and ashes and self-mortification by any stretch of the imagination. But you never get to put that away. And modern day first world Christianity puts that away in a lockbox and never takes it out. This goes back to the very first book we talked about. And... A republic, if you can keep it, a moral and religious people. The, the, an era in which those two challenges are met would not allow the things to occur to ever happen. It would be inconceivable. It would be inconceivable that you would keep me locked down for nearly an entire year with, with basically no data whatsoever and that i would i would tolerate that that i that that i would put up with it that if the city of san francisco wants to open the the gyms the city opens it's okay but if you a private property owner want to open yours it's not i'm i'm not calling for revolution i want to make that very clear i am not i am saying though Founding fathers called for one for less than that. For less than that. Government decides which business is essential and which isn't. Not even winners and losers anymore. Who gets to even exist? Who even gets to open? What you must and must not wear on your face The window to the soul, how we primarily engage one another as a species. These are things that would have been inconceivable to previous generations. And a lot of us just frankly aren't willing to pay any cost for any of this. We're not, 
You know, the book of Acts, they counted it joy to suffer for the name. We don't want to suffer at all. The suffering we want to do is we want to email programs like this and complain. We don't want to say no. We don't want to stand out. We, 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 don't, we don't want to put up with the blowback. So you just get the tyranny then, I guess. I had this talk with my 10-year-old daughter at the mall yesterday. We're walking around and everybody's wearing masks and we're not. You don't have to, uh, yeah. but everybody's still wearing it. And I said, at least most of these people are not really afraid of the virus anymore. They're afraid of what people would yeah. think That's exactly that. right. Yep. That is exactly And that's with my 10-year-old right. daughter. That, that's exactly right. I mean, we just, we won't refuse. We won't say no. And so that's why the answer the enemy always hears is, well, then yes. Then yes is the answer. You don't, you don't get to passive-aggressive the enemy. You tell him no, or he receives the answer as yes. That's the bargain with, with hell. You tell him no, or the answer is yes. That's the way it operates. You tell him no, or the answer is yes. You don't like abstain, conscientiously object, mull it over. Hell is all Keynesian, zero sum, as Aaron said last hour. So you tell them no, or they will receive that your answer is yes. You think it over, they're just doing it. They're just going to do it and put it right in your face. And I think we just aren't willing to pay a cost and that's why we're getting rolled. Well, I mean, you know, Steve, I'll get arrested. I'll lose my business. What you all think lives, fortunes, and sacred honors meant? Think that was like a, in, a trite phrase? You know the story of those 56 men that signed that declaration? You know several of the high-profile names. Do you know about some of the other names you don't know? You know why you don't know all 56 of those names? Because for every Benjamin Rush and John Hancock and Benjamin Franklin, there was somebody who got killed lost their entire family fortune, were, were wrecked, destroyed in order to pay the cost for us to be here and have the opportunity to blow this up and, and screw it up 240-some-odd years later. The next book we're going to get to, this is my selection. It's an update of a Francis Schaeffer classic, but... Um, this is a book I read shortly after my conversion. It's Chuck Colson's update, How Now Shall We Live? It's an update of Francis Schaeffer's How Shall We Live? And um, I had the opportunity to interview Chuck before he died. Nancy piercy has been on this show a couple of times. But this book does for a biblical worldview what the five, in my mind, what the 5,000-year leap does for an American worldview is it it's it's easily readable and accessible but it applies it comprehensively to every walk of life every walk of life and it doesn't it, it doesn't get bogged down in the false choice between uh, reason and faith it views them all the way through in every chapter as a symbiotic relationship, that they are one flesh, to borrow a pun, um, that they are unified. They just automatically go together. 
that you have faith for a reason and there are reasons for your faith. And fruit is played out when you recognize that they are two sides of the same coin. They are not at war with one another. That they are in relationship with each other. And it's, it's a seamless bond. They're married. They're wed to each other, really. And the way that Colson applies that principle consistently, I mean, music, arts, worship, theology, every, every aspect of human existence. It is a phenomenal book, gentlemen. I always imagined uh, that you had kind of a kindred spirit sensibility about reading Colson because that, that was a guy, I mean, his talents, his will were immense. Uh, I was always struck by the gentleness of his testimony, but the more so because I knew his past. Mm-hmm. I mean, this man knew how to wield the iron fist of politics and did so much to his hey, own detriment. Went to prison for Watergate. So, his role know, in that. Yes. I, I always thought that you probably very much connected with you know how, the the humility uh, that it requires you to to bend your knee in full submission to your Lord, uh, with all of the other draws on you, the pulls, the uh, the antagonisms. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I need it. I need this to intellectually make sense. I mean, you said earlier, I'm an emotional guy. That's true. I'm very, I, I'm, I'm a passionate, passionate guy. guy. Yes. But it's, but it is, it's driven by a, by belief, not by emotion, if that makes sense. Yeah, okay. now, now it isn't for me too, but in the past, I mean, that's the thing. I know yes. I had to fight. I mean, if it was just raw emotion time, I could do that pretty darn but, well. But I, 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 just speaking for me, I I needed this to intellectually mm-hmm. make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I got converted, I mean, before I was converted, when I started at WHO, the very first day I started on their sports station, it was always with the intent of eventually moving me over to anchor the, the news talk station. But I didn't know how long that was ever, that was going to take. And, and frankly, I just, I love, you know, I was fine talking about sports. I love sports. It was just the more that, and I still do, but it was just the more that I grew in my faith. The, the, and this book, this book was a huge leap forward for me, was reading this book. Because it, it opened me up to what, what does Paul mean when he says, no longer be conformed to the thoughts and patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What, what does that mean? And if you go through the New Testament, it's interesting. There, there's very few affirmative things that we are called to take initiative in, and, and do in, in the New Covenant. Because the bottom line of the new covenant is what God has done for you, right? Through Christ, right? That's how we enter into that covenant to begin with. The final words at the cross, it is finished or it is accomplished, okay? To die. that's what he says, okay? Um, what is finished? What is accomplished? The wrath of God is finished. It is accomplished. The debt that we owe to God for our sin has been realized, That's what Jesus meant in the Gospels when he said, I didn't come to abolish the law, right? I think modern Christianity, you know, we forget that part where he he goes after the Pharisees, not for tithing, 
diligently or even militantly in this case on like spices. He doesn't tell him that's bad. He doesn't say, hey, stop doing, why are you tithing on spices? That's dumb. He doesn't tell him not to do that. He tells them that doing that though, without seeing the bigger picture, the, the main point of this is pointless. Okay. He, in fact, he tells them you should have done those things in light of knowing what the bigger, larger picture of grace and mercy really is. That that's what should have, knowing the cost that your redemption would cost is what drove, drives you to want to do those things to repay your Lord for what he did for you. But if without recognizing Jesus as Lord, those are just pointless exercises. You're attempting to pay a debt that you can't pay, God. You can't pay it. And you're rejecting the sacrifice that God made on your behalf by already paying it. There's nothing wrong with wanting to follow the letter of the law, but if it is minus the spirit of the law, then it's legalism. That's what Jesus is talking about there. And the the idea that this could be applied, what's the spirit of the law look like? And how is that how is that applied to every walk of life? That's what Colson's book did for me. And one of the few things we are affirmatively told to do in the New Testament is to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Take initiative here to draw closer in that relationship by seeking out that transformation. And Colson's book was a big part in that transformation happening in my life. That's why I included it. Aaron, you have any thoughts? I think we can move on to the next one. All right. The next book on our list, and this this is Todd, your final selection, An Education for Our Time by Josiah Bunting, 1998. How much time do I have, Aaron? Uh, we've got another eight minutes oh, here. Good. Okay. Well, you'll see the forward is by Bill Bennett. I was a huge uh, Bill Bennett fan uh, uh, growing up, so I'm sure that's why this caught my eye. This book blew me away. It is a work of fiction. And I started reading it without knowing too many of the details. And you're you're gonna be confused because it's a work of fiction, but it seemed it's it's as it's written to make it seem like this is really happening. And this is a retired military colonel. It's a, a man on his uh, deathbed, but a man of immense Bill Gates-like wealth who de decided to found his own liberal arts college in the uh from scratch in the uh, mountains of wyoming uh to return to the ideals that made this country gate great uh, from a founding perspective and it is you you're thinking think along the lines of 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 uh the greeks and plato why they established academies for learning a wholesale immersion of mind body and soul of what you conceive that to be mm -hmm. into the thinking and it is a life they break down everything from living and what you do when you're eating in the cafeteria there will be poetry read there will be music played by the students themselves the students will engage in the cooking there will be immersing yourself in the outdoors with camping and trekking and horseback riding they, no stone unturned your education is not as i conceived it you know hey university of wisconsin go to my classes but really not 
you know, I was just checking boxes. I did not just start- get inculcated by the information oh, the professor goodness. gives you. Find out what you need to know no. in order to pass a test. Yes. Get the grade you want to get the certificate yes. you need and get the job yes. you desire. And that's my my fault. It's when I graduated from college and I, I had a light bulb moment. I realized that's what I did. That why I can say I've read most of the books on this list and so many more. I spent a five-year period. I went to college on my own. I self-taught myself all the stuff that I took for granted, didn't learn, what have you. But you, no stone is left unturned with this. This is what an education should be in so many ways. I, again, I, I've read this book like five different times because it's just that enjoyable to, to, think, to watch somebody think about why we are great and why we shouldn't apologize for that. And by God, we need to pass it on to the next generation. Hmm. Aaron, your perspective on this as a homeschooled kid. Well, um, I, I had the privilege of getting a lot of that education, it sounds like, at least at the, at the beginning. Um, and it, it is something that is fascinating because it's not just the, it sounds like, Todd, I have not read this book, but it sounds like the point you're making in that it's not just the book learning education, is it? It's, it's the things you actually need to know uh, for for actually how the world ticks, how the world works. And those are things you just cannot learn in a book. And as good of an education and blessed as I was to have an edu education, I learned the most, and I think all of us would say this to some degree, we've learned the most in our lives, not from in the classroom, but from just living life and just making our own decisions, taking our own risks and things like that. And that's kind of sounds like, Todd, that's what this book is more about than just well, book it, learning. It just isn't flippant about yeah. anything, you know, when, and to the degree that I read now, it's like I, I just wanted it so badly to fill my soul. It had nothing to do about a grade anymore. Nothing wrong with getting a good grade on something. But I just I, I was not going to school. I was not educated uh, for the right reasons, uh, with the right motivations. I, it, and once I got that, my, my life took off in new ways and the ways I would dedicate myself and why the cost mm -hmm. was not only present to me then, but it didn't frighten me anymore. Why, why do you think we don't educate like this? Well, I mean, if you want right now to come true, the, the totally uh, bizarre world where you want to undo reality, you simply can't. You simply can't educate people honestly and end up now where all of us are talking about on a daily basis on the show. That's impossible. Yes. there's. A, I think there's another answer, though. In what environment? You've used the term, and it, you know, it's one of my favorite things to engage in. It's, another, it's one of the foundations and fundamentals of our program. Critical thinking. Critical thinking. In what, what environment encourages organically critical thinking to occur? And what environment discourages clinically critical thinking occurring? Well, more and more uh, schools of the, the, every the, every stripe. And so, if once you remove critical thinking, see, I actually think the problem in America is not is not an absence of God. We are invoking the name of God publicly more than I can ever remember. I mean, all over the place. I mean, we got 7 million definitions of who, she, what, or it that is, right? Okay, but God's everywhere, okay? Now, see, it's the the plague in America is we've gotten rid of critical thinking. And, and if you critically think, you are immediately labeled, my opinion, 
that this is the current plague. And it's what's led to all the other maladies we have. And, and the church has played into this because it, it really doesn't want, in many cases, as a body to, you know, Owen Strain is a great follow on Twitter. He's big on this, okay? It doesn't really want to disciple men in a masculine way because then men are like, well, what are we going to do with all this knowledge then? You know, what? why am I coming here every Sunday? I got bills to pay, jobs, mouths to feed. I mean, I, I don't need to just sit here and, and, and feel like I'm going to check a box. If you're going to convince me this stuff is true, then what are we going to do with it? And, and men will ask questions that are like, hey, I listen to this, and, and, but hey, I got a question about this. And maybe that's something the pastor doesn't want to be questioned about. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so it's more of an inculcation environment. Just come sit and be and and sit down, be lectured to, go home. Okay. And all of the the plague is is we've removed critical thinking, because critical thinking is what spurs independence. Inculcation is what creates conformity. That's the difference. Um, a great way of looking at the gospel. Uh, it, there's a movie on, you can watch on Netflix called Interview with God. And the questioner asked him, is there any other way to heaven other than through Christ? And God says, the actor playing God says, no, there are infinite numbers of journeys, but there's only one path, meaning we're all individuals on our own individual journey. Okay. But there's only one path that gets you where you want to go. Okay. And that's a great example of the diversity of critical thinking that the biblical worldview promotes. We have gotten rid of critical thinking because that's easier for y'all to be programmed. And if you try to critically think, then you're immediately labeled science denier, racist, sexist, misogynist, homophobe, bigot, right? All right. All in it, all these are, are these are all attempts to stop critical thinking from happening in America. And it's why we have the education environment we have as well. Because if you don't critically think, you are controlled. Truth, straight, no chaser. Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network. with the final portion of a special edition of the Steve Day Show. It's the show that we have promised and threatened to do for years. And today's finally the day we're doing the thing. The 10 books every American should be required to read before acquiring a voter registration card. To recap, because we're down to the final two. And, you know, these aren't, this wasn't intended to be like a grand finale. I kind of feel like looking at what the final two books are, I kind of feel like it's going For to be. For sure. All right? So, The 5,000-Year Leap by Cleon Skousen was the first book we discussed. That was my pick. Todd's first pick, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Then we went to Aaron's recommendation, The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Back to me for The Marketing of Evil by WorldNet Daily's David Capellian. Then to Todd for On Two Wings by the late Michael Novak. The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Aaron's next suggestion. I then went to How Now Shall We Live by the late, great Chuck Colson. 
And then we just discussed an education for our time by Josiah Bunting. Uh, that uh, was uh, Todd's book we were just talking about before the break. And now we are down in these final 15 minutes and change to the final two. Aaron, the final book that you would like to recommend to our audience is what? Bonhoeffer by Eric Metaxas. And I, I think it's I, I think most people in our audience have probably have probably read this or at least are familiar with it. But you want to look like look take a look, a real world look, a more modern than maybe the US uh, re, re, revolution, I should say, a, a more modern look at what the cost of actually living your stated beliefs to their or taking them to their their logical conclusion or at least your motivations to their logical conclusion if that's where you uh, feel led then this this is the book for you Bonhoeffer by uh, Eric Metaxas and if you're familiar with the Mandalorian on Netflix the catchphrase this is the way you know if this is ever re-released or reprinted Maybe that, that should be the title of this of the book. This is the way. Mm. Because Bonhoeffer did just was just not born into, well, uh, yeah, definitely. I'm I'm definitely a radical who's going to attempt to uh, assassinate or fear her someday. No. Uh, this was a guy, and this is written about in the biography. He was he was in many ways a seeker. He was trying to figure out the way to go. And eventually his look and his studies and his travels and his thinking and and his walk with uh, walk uh, you know uh, along the christian road eventually led him to the place where i can't i can't sit here i cannot sit here and let this dude and just let this dude do what he's attempting to do to this country to this continent to the world something has to be done and this is the way that i'm going to go about it if you want to know but all of your stated beliefs, if you're listening to this show, it might require, if you, this was, this was just Bonhoeffer's, uh, this was his motivation. This is what he was compelled to do. If you want to take a look at what the cost of what, and he, you know, he, he failed to do it, but he did it. Uh, he attempted to do it at least. He did a lot more than emailing or writing letters at the end of the day. Because there wasn't email back then, just side trivia note. Um, but this is this is what co the cost of carrying out what many of us say we believe may look like on some day, given the circumstances that we find ourselves in, given what we feel compelled to do in our spirit. This may be very well in some form what we. Uh, are are forced to do or feel called to do or compelled to do on any given day by whether it's um, you know whether it's the Holy Spirit whether it's uh, just the cause this is this is the cause and this is this is our back against the wall this is us in a corner this may very well be the portrait of, of where we are at someday or where we may be very close to right now this is one of the best-selling Christian books of the last decade um, if, if Eric was here, He'd probably say what I've said early many times about a nefarious plot. He'll never write anything better the rest of his career. This is considered a, a seminal work yep. and biography. One of the things you learn in his story is he originally was kind of what we would call uh, 
a liberal mainliner, correct? Yeah. And I think he actually did tours in the U.S. in the 30s about racial injustice and things of that nature. Um, He was considered, the term wasn't applied to religion back then. Um, It was still kind of in its nascent stages and and it was, it had a, a wide swath of people who called themselves progressives back then. Uh, Woodrow Wilson is considered the first progressive president. Teddy Roosevelt called himself a progressive. Okay, so it was it was it it, it didn't have quite the uh, the sting that the word has in our time, but in his day and age, he would have been considered more of a progressive Christian kind of a. a now he believed in orthodoxy, but but politically, culturally, he would have been fairly yep. liberal, right? Mm-hmm. And and so, how did he end up with with one application of his faith from from one end of the spectrum? Was he? In, remind me, was he involved in Valkyrie? Was that the plot that he was involved yep. in? Was that okay? So, how did he end up? Hey, we can use public institutions to. Um, make human nature better right that's essentially was his message traveling the u.s prior to the full ascension of adolf hitler social justice yes he was preaching a a a proto version of the social justice message yeah from the pulpit to now he is involved in project valkyrie and this is the culmination of a failed state this is what happens when we put too much power when we entrust the state as a salve, as a salvationary construct, as a divine, not an instrument, but a, a construct in and of itself, in something to be worshipped. When we entrust that level of power into the state, that it can, it has the authority, the wherewithal, the power within itself to lift people to a higher plane of existence. This is the 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 most ghoulish, wicked expression of that tyranny's manifestation, ultimate manifestation. Mm -hmm. And now he ends up essentially trying to assassinate the ultimate culmination of what he was, frankly, advocating. I mean, if you look at what, what Bonhoeffer was originally advocating and what Hitler was advocating, they're not really that much different. They just had different races that they thought the state should prefer. Really, right? Mm-hmm. Different races that they thought. Now, that doesn't mean there's no place for the state to practice racial equality in terms of the the way that the laws are written, the way that the laws are adjudicated, correct? Correct. Right? That races are not given favor over another, right? But the idea that the state could make you not racist, that could change what's going on in here, in the chest, that if the state changes the policies you can be redeemed in the heart. That's that's really the social justice message. Mm-hmm. Bonhoeffer believed in that and then found out in his own era, in his own culture, what happened when everybody else did too. And, and now, at the end of his days, he's Samson in Project Valkyrie edition, tearing down the temples of Dagon, you know, pl- trying to plunge it face down into the dirt, until he dies in a concentration camp, right? It's an it's an amazing story. Yeah, it's fascinating, Aaron, that two of your books involve him. Yep. Uh, I, I, doesn't surprise me knowing you, but it's it's something we share. The, the it's Braveheart at the end when he knows he's going to die, but he 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 begs God, help me to die well. 
Like this is inside of us. This mm-hmm. this fight of realizing, and you know, I've I thought I had ideals. I thought I was fighting for them the right way, and you, I just. This is Sound and Fury signifying nothing. It's just utterly flaccid. Please, God, rescue me from myself and let me do your will. And this, he he figured that out, and we got to see it all play out like this. And again, um, he's he's ultimately through his sacrifice and telling us about it. He's a champion of the greatest things of heaven. Hmm. Which brings us to the final book that we will discuss here: Animal Farm by George Orwell. I first read this book in the sixth grade. I was going to John Ballpark Zoo School in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Real, it's a real thing. And I don't know if it still exists, but back in the day, all of the elementary schools in the fifth grade would select one high-achieving boy and girl to go to this um, advanced advanced placement school in the sixth grade, which took place at the zoo. And the kind of learning that you just described in, in your book by Josiah Bunting. In Education, in education of Art. We learned like this. Okay? I mean, we, we went out and experienced our learning. We did camping trips, hikes. Um, we did explorations. We, we went out and actively... We helped assist with um, the zoo uh, and the animals. Looks like it's still active today. Is it still active today? Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, we had to put together presentations um, that were manifestations of the things that we were taught. We had to put these things into practice and experience them in the real world. And um, I remember... There's, I still have this autographed picture hanging up in my man cave today. My, the final project that I was going to do for uh, my sixth grade, and then we ended up having to move, and so I couldn't finish the school year at, at zoo school. So I never ended up giving the presentation, but it was going to be on Animal Farm. I invited Sparky Anderson, Detroit Tigers manager at the time, to come to my presentation, not realizing the end of the school year would be at the end of May, and... He's somewhat uh, otherwise engaged, right? He sent me a really nice, personally autographed note that still hangs up in my man cave to this day, actually. But at this school, I learned, I got to tell you guys, a lot of the stuff I learned at this school in the sixth grade sticks with me now. And I mean, this was 1986, so almost 35, 35 years ago. And one of the things, one of the classes we took at the school was Russian Revolution. That was one of the courses we had to take was on the Russian Revolution. And it was a, and we had to deconstruct the Russian Revolution. Can you imagine a public school? This was the 1980s now. So we're the, you know, we're, we're, the U.S. is about to win the Cold War. We're in the, we're in the mid to late 1980s. Reagan's about to end the Soviet Union once and for all. So no one batted an eyelash about teaching kids that Sovietism was bad. Okay? Could you imagine doing that today? Could you imagine in a government school classroom taking the most elite elementary school students you have and putting them in, in sequestering them so that they can be taught 
Marxism is bad. Well, that's happening just the exact opposite. Yeah, we're doing the opposite. Yeah, Yeah, we're taking the elite kids away so they can be taught Marxism is good. Yes. Yes, yes. And one of the things that we had to be taught in order to deconstruct the Bolshevik revolution was Animal Farm. And when we were taught this, it was specifically applied in the context that Orwell meant it. The book is a deconstruction of the Bolshevik revolution. And, And that's how we were taught it. That Napoleon is Joseph Stalin, that Snowball is Leon Trotsky, that old major is Vladimir Lenin. We were taught yeah. the actual truth of this. And for me, growing up, I kind of got involved in right-wing politics because um, it was a way to rebel against my abusive stepdad, and I loved Alex B. Keaton's character on Family Ties. But I couldn't quantify a lot of this stuff. I didn't know what it was just a way of me rebelling passive aggressively against my union steward Democrat dad, okay? Who hate who voted for Reagan in 80 and then hated him because he fired the air traffic controllers and betrayed the unions, okay? Until I took this course on this book. And this book, more than any other, laid the foundation for the um the political views I would go on and have for the rest of my life because it showed me what, what losing what the cost of losing to these people really is. I have quoted other than the Bible. I have quoted this book more than any other book in the history of, of my career. And that will probably continue on. I used to read this book every single year. Well into my thirties, I would read it at least once every single year because it is, it is, C.S. Lewis level, screw tape letters level, deconstruction of, of, of pagan political philosophy. And it blows it way out of the water. And remember, Orwell was at the time considered a liberal. But he was the kind of liberal that James Woods was in the 80s. Okay, like wearing a ponytail and actually thought that everything should be permitted with free speech. And then found out that a lot of the libs that he thought yeah. were with him didn't want all that free speech. And and now he is considered like some kind of alt-right nationalist right. when he has the same views he had in the 1980s. Right. When, you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. That's what this book is. Orwell was a liberal at the time. But he is often quoted and championed by right-wingers in our day and age because ultimately his left-wingers fulfilled his fears of what would happen if they if they had aspirational notions about their civil about their about their civil politics that it that it could accomplish what Bonhoeffer was was forced to face uh, in his own country. Well, the in companion Germany. music to this is your favorite Who song, "Won't Get Fooled Again." Right? Yes. I mean, it's, it's absolutely yeah. yes. How he takes the Doberman Pinchers away and reprograms them, and and they become eventually the Brown Church or the KGB. I mean the the book is beyond brilliant. Four legs good, two legs bad. Four legs good, but two legs are even better. And they looked from man to pig and pig to man and back to man again, and they couldn't tell the difference. It's the first adult book I had. Now three of my daughters in middle school that, you know, other than scripture, that I have them read. And now my oldest daughter is reading 1984 this year. Mm -hmm. And so she had a primer for it. She knew, okay, George, I've read him before. And she talked to me just a couple days ago in the car. We're talking. She says, Dad, they're talking about right now. 
Said that a girl. Buckle up. Yes. Well, I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Yes. We should have done this show a long time ago. <laughs> but I'm glad we finally got around to it. I hope all of you enjoyed it as well. Our special edition. You now know the 10 books we think you all should read before you ever vote. Ever. Or ever again. John 317. This is Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network.